All right, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling. So, Dave, guess where I am right now? Um, I don't know. You tell me. God's glorious, humid waiting room. I am in Florida. You're in Orlando. <laughs> I'm in Orlando. Exactly right. Nice. <laughs> yep. Um, down here for the uh, for the Gartner conference, uh, which has been huge fun. Uh, I don't know what's going on with you. Where are you at today? I am just exhausted from the last podcast we did. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like a filibuster. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you get a catheter for. A, uh, the last one. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that, everybody. We boy, we had a lot to talk about. We got we got we got stuff to say, and I'm not ashamed yep. of it. I'm not ashamed of that. Yep. But as a we're, we're, let's swing the pendulum back the other way, and, and we're going to keep things uh, tight. That's right. right. The, the motto week. the motto this week is overcorrecting. We're going to overcorrect yes. this week. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so what what do we so what do we have set up, Dave? Yeah. What's what's coming up? Okay, so we got uh, Vulcan Death Grips, uh, Death from Above, and the Death of the Open Source Business Model. A morbid episode of the Dave and Gunner Show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're getting ready for Halloween here. <laughs> That's right. That's great. And we got a wonderful picture of the week, uh, which makes me giggle every time I look at it. Uh, if folks want to take a look at the picture of the week, uh, where, where, where shall they go, Dave? They should go to dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner Show.org. And that's where we have the cutting room floor, right? Yep, exactly right. Yeah. All right, so we... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. It's all you. Well, we got what? We got uh, an Onion movie review, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so that's that's something for everybody to take a look at. Excellent. So the shutdown, Dave. Yes. The shutdown is uh, plaguing our nation. Um, yes. And I, and I think we feel the effects much more acutely than uh, than the average person because we interact with government folks all day. Um, and I really feel for how they're getting caught in the middle of this kind of ridiculous argument. Yes. Um, just, you know, I, I, we personally know people who, you know, are getting furloughed, um, you know, are taking a, taking a haircut, you know, twice a week, you know, being made to stay home uh, without mm-hmm. pay. And it looks like they're fixing some of the, they're going to get paid, back pay uh it looks like some government employees are going to get their paychecks recovered they're, they're going to get paid back once the government starts up again but uh what a mess what a mess. yeah um so we were looking at uh ways in which you can talk to your congressman that is uh if you would like more information about your your congressman or you'd like to write them uh i don't know if a lot of people know this uh folks at sunlight foundation and and other organizations have put together a pretty elaborate set of APIs for being able to interrogate uh, public data about information about your congressperson. Mm. Um, one of them is New York Times, and so they have this congressional API, uh, which, is, uh, which is really great. It gives you kind of basic information about Congress, and you can see the value of being able to use that data in another program. So if you're building an app that does like a mass mailing or uh, you know, does like a write your congressman app? It'd be pretty great mm-hmm. to have an API which would tell you where your congressman lives, and, or where, you know, which congressman is assigned to you know a particular location. 
Anyway, so there are APIs that do this. Uh, New York Times has one, the Congressional API, and uh, they just added it to one of my favorite web services, which is uh, If This Then That, or IFTTT. Mm -hmm. um, so IFTTT, if you if uh, folks aren't familiar with it, is a web page you can go to, uh, and it basically links web services with other web services. So as an example, every time you can set it up so that every time an episode of the Dave and Gunner show comes up on the RSS feed, it will send you an mm -hmm. email. Right, that's like a that's a mm -hmm. basic example, um, but uh, the IFTTT guys uh, ha actually have the Congressional API up um, as a service that you can connect to other services. Nice. Yeah, so it's pretty great. Um, so you know, when a particular thing happens, or uh, when something happens in Congress, uh, that can actually trigger a tweet, or a post to Facebook, or a blog post, or send you an email, or send you a text message. Uh, they're pretty clever. I, I don't. I'm finding it finding it hard to figure out a practical application to this uh, for for mm -hmm. me in my own life, but I'm really excited to see what folks come up with. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 always interesting when um, somebody comes up with something and they use it in a totally unique way that you never thought of. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but of course, there are downsides to relying on an API for information like this, right? Um, the uh, the shutdown uh, turns out the shutdown shutdown data.gov um, mm. and so these same folks who are building these these APIs uh, when they build applications or when they build web services they rely on the data that lives in data.gov along with the researchers and the analysts who who use this data kind of day in and day out uh, U.S. Census data isn't accessible from the website right now um, mm. and so. Uh, Eric Mill, uh, who's one a really fantastic developer, we might have mentioned him earlier on the show. Um, Eric wrote a really nice blog post on the Sunlight Foundation uh, website, mm -hmm. which describes the dangers of relying on APIs versus mm -hmm. the raw data. Yes. Uh, and so, anyway, it's interesting following the story, kind of in response to the shutdown and all these APIs being shut down. The, a lot of these open government advocates, the folks who are building these APIs, are actually organizing themselves to kind of create these like ad hoc archives, right? So if there is a critical data set that they need access to, they realize now that they can't rely on that API because someone could take it away um, yes. the next time there's a congressional problem in Congress. And so they're actually going to organize ways of like, grabbing that raw data and keeping their own copies of it for safekeeping. Um, mm. Which is really interesting. It got me thinking about, you know, we talk about data portability and privacy and, and re the reliability of web services um, on the show all the time. And it, uh, I just thought it was pretty clever that those same problems actually occur in government, right? When the government yes. provides people services. You can't rely on the government always having this API available. You've got to make sure you've got your belt and suspenders on and you have a, uh, you have a plan for when that API goes away. Yeah, I look at it too as, you know, whenever you, I think about API lock-in, it's always, uh, I tend to think of it more in the in the commercial sector, right? Mm -hmm. That it's like, oh, well, Twitter's changing the way that you could post tweets or read tweets or things like that. And uh, um, I think this is a good example of, of it's, you know, the private sector not having a monopoly on that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I even went to look at the... Oh, wait. Yeah. That an interruption brought to us by housekeeping. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, why don't you? Why don't you go ahead and start that? Why don't you go back and start from? Um, 
I got it. Okay. I can do it. Cool. Yeah. So, and a lot of times when, you know, I always think about, oh, well, APIs and it's like, well, a provider provides the APIs. I'm always thinking that, that it's like the commercial provider and worrying about the lock-in of that commercial provider, like whether the the provider goes out of business or they change direction um, or they change their business model, like like how Twitter used to be. And we've talked about this in the past where Twitter was a very open platform at first where now they're starting to close things in as they have a, a captive audience. Um, but I think this is an example too of, of uh, the, the private sector not having a monopoly on uh, you know, being worried about API lock-in. Um, the other thing I noticed too is that I went to look a CVE up, and the, the NIST uh, website wasn't cooperating with me because of the shutdown, um, which is kind of frightening, right? Yeah. It's like I want to I want to see if uh, oh, there's a vulnerability here. I want to look it up. Um, and I, what was weird though is I could see it on the MITRE website, but I, but whenever I would go to click, it would actually, I guess, it would like redirect. Um, to NIST and then from NIST redirect to the vendor website um, even though there was like a link in in the MITRE webpage where, and so I just copied and pasted the, the Red Hat link to go to our security announcement um, but it was weird, it just it blew out there so it was, it was kind of disappointing yeah, there, there are these. Uh, suddenly, the web has all these cul-de-sacs uh, for like, mm-hmm. like this one. Now that the government, a lot of the government websites are shut down, um, I've run into a couple of those. Uh, but that one's really worrying because I, that's the national vulnerability database, right? If I want to find out if my system is vulnerable or if I mean if there's a problem, I, I can't imagine why that's not classified as essential. Right. Exactly. And but you also talk about like the the data. Um, being replicated, wouldn't it be great to have like some sort of cloud-based storage that would be replicated that could store big data and have that available for people to use? Oh, you mean like Red Hat storage? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Red Hat storage. Mm-hmm. Which, which, to and to make that clear, so the Red Hat storage would allow you to take a large data set, like say a government data set, um, put it down locally and have it automatically replicated out or spread across not just that one data center of yours, but also uh, a cloud service or even multiple cloud services, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah so you could have a copy running up on, uh, uh, you could have Red Hat Storage running up on AWS and, and always have that synchronized with the data source on data.gov. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, speaking of monopolies... Oh, we were to- yeah. we were we were, <laughs> we were talking about control delete just a few minutes mm-hmm. ago. Um, yeah, and it's interesting, you know, control delete. You know, it, now it's like a trope in culture, right? But it started off as a way just to reboot a DOS system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but its purpose has changed over time. Um, and so, but you found this article from Bill Gates. Yes, yes, he he admits that control delete was a mistake. And what was his? What was the mistake exactly? Yeah, and I don't know if I agree with him on this. Um, what he wanted was a single button that you press on the keyboard to reboot a PC, where IBM was insisting upon, no, you don't want somebody to accidentally lean up against it and reboot the computer. Um, so you want to have it be a something that would be hard to do by accent. So like Control-Alt and then something clear on the other end of the keyboard um, to do uh, delete uh, would make it less likely for you to do that by mistake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, that makes some sense. That, I mean, that's actually happened to me before. I remember some old PC cases. They had the hard reset 
button on mm-hmm. them, um, and mm-hmm. it would be like right on the front of the chassis and right next to the power button, um, mm-hmm. and it would that caused me no end of trouble. Actually, no, right next to the turbo button. Remember turbo buttons? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so awesome. instead of instead of hitting turbo, I would hit reset and uh, and ruin my game. Uh, that was yep. that was really upsetting. Uh, but then control delete though the purpose evolved over time and it became the way that you log into a Windows system right you get in order to get a login prompt you need to hit control alt delete and I never really understood why but then mm-hmm. Wikipedia to the rescue there is yes there is a Wikipedia entry on control alt delete talks about the history and all the uses of the uh, thank of the, goodness thank goodness that's right I don't know how we lived this long um, but the but the reason for control alt delete being the what summons the login prompt is because control alt delete is reserved by the operating system and brings a user directly to the win- the windows like security services mm-hmm. so the justification is um if we didn't have this kind of trusted path to a login prompt another application could bring up the login prompt in like invoke it via software and maybe mm-hmm. trick you into entering the password, maybe capturing the password, something like that. Um, but with this control to lead in place, it means that only the operating system would be able to bring up, you know, the quote unquote official Windows login prompt. Right. Which seems like it seems weird to me. I, that doesn't seem. It seems like a half measure. Like I don't I don't know it, how that would work in in practice. Right, and I also I haven't. I I've only seen that on Windows systems. Like I've I've never seen that on a Unix box where it's like you have the X login or a t- teleterminal where you have a login console or you have um nowadays uh an iPad or an Android where you know it's you don't have to hit some weird key sequence to make it active. Mhm. Mhm. Well, no yeah, but to to at least log in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But no, on SGI boxes you had a mm-hmm. a particular keystroke, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was affectionately called the Vulcan Death Grip, um, <laughs> and and so instead of Control Delete, it was Control Shift F twelve, and then slash on the keypad, not not slash on on the like the the uh, alphabetical side, but on actually on the number pad, um, um, and so you would do that, and that would that would kill the X server. Um, but whenever I first heard that, the, you know, it's like the I remember I was I was working for the government uh, government con- contractor then or like the SGI um, uh, systems engineer is like oh we'll we'll just do the Vulcan death grip and I'm like Vulcan death grip cool what's that and uh, and uh, so was, I always found that uh, to be very affectionate <laughs> it's actually documented is it documented as the Vulcan death grip yes <laughs> yes that's wonderful so so I'll, I have a link in the uh, show notes where. Um, the inside the SGI documentation it tells you how to activate the um, Vulcan Death Grip. I, I don't know if there's any royalties that have to go back to uh, um, uh, Gene Roddenberry or I don't know what. Right. But, okay. Yeah. Uh, so in uh, in in other news, you know, I'm walking the halls at this conference here, and uh, it's become really popular to have these charging stations in the hallways. Mm-hmm. Um, so yep. you know, just a some little podium with like four. Uh, tentacles coming off of it and people can plug their phones into it and, and recharge them. Um, I find it difficult to imagine a better vector for data breaches. Oh my gosh. Than, yes. than setting up one of these, one of these podiums, right? Um, like here we go, slap a Samsung logo on it. And now suddenly I've got all the data I want uh, from some of these attendees. Um, yes. 
And so, so you had found this. The, what is it? What is it? A, what is it called? A, am I saying this right? A USB condom? Is that right? A USB prophylactic? Um. Well, typically, if you take a look at a USB cable, it has it has four wires in it. Mm-hmm. Um. Two of them are for power, and then two of them are for data. Mm-hmm. And so, what you can do is you could have just a USB charging cable that essentially doesn't have the two wires for data. And and so I've seen people use that before um, mm-hmm. just for charging. I, and and even I've seen people um, that where it, it would just frustrate me to no end where you have these devices that act as one device and then they, but at first they act like a different one. So like if you ever use like a MiFi device, mm-hmm. um, if, if you plug it into a USB port, it will actually act like a CD-ROM drive, which huh. is crazy. And the reason for that is that there's a little nice little section on the MiFi that has the Windows drivers for that MiFi device on it. Mm-hmm. So whenever you plug it into a uh, a a, um, a Windows box, it will mount it as a CD-ROM drive. It'll allow you to install the drivers, and once the drivers are installed, every time after that, you go to um, uh, plug it in, it will see that the drivers are already installed and then bypass that. And to me, it's like, that's just like such a kludge. It's frustrating. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so like, I, and so when I had a MiFi, um, I saw that, uh, I had that problem with Linux where it's like, I, I plug it in and the thing shows up like a USB drive but what I needed to do was unmount CD-ROM drive, and then it would show up. It would it would replug itself in and show up as a um, as a uh, like a network card, mm-hmm. and then it would work right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just it was just so maddeningly frustrating. So I so I seen I saw like Brian Che um, who works for Red Hat. He a long time ago he wrote an article that show up. Well, it's like well why don't you just use um, just a data charging cable, and that'll work. Um, but I found out that it's like I don't even have to do that. You could actually um, blacklist um, the 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 device inside of UDEV. Uh, I, rem- I, I remember uh, BlackBerry uh, used to ship with data only de- data only cables, and I, or I'm sorry, power only cables, and I never understood why. Um, but now I realize that it was actually a security measure. Mm. Yeah, and so d- depending upon like what like what about like iOS or like even Android like I think for Android for the device to mount you need to unlock the device at least or or in some versions of Android you would do explicitly in uh, mount that device so are there any protections in place on the device itself whether it's Android or iOS to say um that oh I plugged it in this device um would you like me to act like a USB drive yeah in the settings you can say um what is it? Export as draw. I think it depends on which version of Android you're on. But there are settings that you can set that say when I plug it in, uh, don't try and present yourself as a as a disk drive. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, there's um, and there's also controls you can put in place on the on the PC. So when you uh, when you plug the phone into your laptop, uh, the Android file transfer tool, which is how you get at an Android hard drive now. Um, the Android file transfer tool will pop up and uh, will not mount the phone uh, until you've unlocked it, hmm. um, which is another that's another layer of protection there. Um, but yeah, it's yes. a, but it, but it, I guess all of which is to say, I think people are pretty cavalier about what they plug their stuff into. 
Um, oh, right. And, and yeah. being a li- the same people that don't put the, the passcode like Marissa Mayer um, on their phone. You know, they're plugging it into all kind of things. Right, 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 right exactly. Um, into your car, as an example, right? Can you imagine uh, the damage you could do uh, if you've compromised the, uh, you know, the USB connection in a rental car? Uh, anyway, mm-hmm. something to think about. So uh, buying power on the USB cable seems like a pretty good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, so speaking of risks and hazards, uh, you found news about a new drone? Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so they're, uh, the, the fine folks at Boeing have uh, turned um, F-16s into drones. What could possibly go wrong? Yep. What's the value of that? I mean, the Predator is already pretty big. Um, the Global Hawk even bigger. I mean, the, and there's all kinds of drones out there already. Like, why would, you make mm-hmm. a, why would you make an existing fighter jet, which is perfectly capable of holding a human, why would you turn that into a drone? Target practice. Oh, that's cool. Yes. <laughs> that's really cool. <laughs> yep. So if you think about it, I mean, it's like a, a predator, you know, it, that's flying at what? A, I don't know how fast they go. A couple hundred miles an hour at best, right? Compared to something going at like Mach 2. Um, you know, you, the, the, it's not going to be a realistic flight or a realistic fight. Um, and so a lot of times people too, they'll, they'll do the, the, um, the flight simulators, which which are pretty good from an optics standpoint, but you also don't get like the force feedback because typically um, uh, flight simulators for um, for fighter jets do not aren't on motion platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if people knew that, but most of the ones that are most of the flight simulators that are on motion platforms are typically um, airliners. Um, so you you know so you don't have things like a G suit and and you know having all that that pressure of, of you, um, whereas with these um, F-16s um, they can they can fly at forty thousand feet. Um, there's a video you can check it out. It's it's flying at forty thousand feet um, at Mach one point four seven and doing a barrel roll pulling seven Gs. God, that's amazing. Yeah, and but it's it, it's like oh we flew over an ocean. You know, so it's like if things go bad, you know, they're not landing on somebody's house or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I mean, that's a small step towards just turning over the entire fleet to uh, to drones, right? Um, if we, yeah. you know, like, if we could retrofit the existing fighters, that's, uh, is, I wonder if there's like a bandwidth constraint or like a latency problem. Like, would you be able to have... Would you have a, the reaction time that you wanted sitting in a you know sitting in a basement in Tampa? Um, right. I mean, you know, the regular drone work is is pretty is less sensitive to like those latency or bandwidth constraints because you know they're mostly just doing kind of surveillance work or kind of you know the <laughs> the assassinations. Um, mm-hmm. Which, but but that's not dogfighting, right? Dogfighting requires mm-hmm. a, a I would guess a completely different kind of performance. Uh, characteristics right so to me i think it's one part is latency and then the other part is visibility where you know the cockpit you know they they have this glass canopy right where they're they're, they need to be able to see all over the place and the pilots typically have uh, freakish vision um which is not the same as looking at like a you know 23 inch hd monitor right right um 
So, oh, but, the, but let me blow your mind though. What if what if I was sitting in a basement in Tampa with sixteen high resolution displays, which prevented me from having to crane my neck in order to get full like fully three hundred sixty like global view of what was going on with me, and in fact like aided by you know computer vision, I, w- I would probably be able to see even better than a pilot would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would I would say so of the flight simulator work that I've done. Um, you know, there there's this thing called eye limiting re- resolution, right? Where mm-hmm. um, you need to be able to get so many um, pixels per arc line pair to be able to, uh, you know, to have twenty twenty vision to be able to see a little f- like a, a a wing tip out on the horizon and and notice that change. Um, and with most of the modern flight simulators are out there, they're, they're approaching eye limiting resolution, but they're still a ways off. Um, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's okay. It's very expensive, but I agree with you that I think that there's this trade-off, right? Where if you, um, you may be trading off resolution and the, the human being being able to look all over the place in the cockpit and, and get that, that sense of presence. But if you could use sensors and computers that could possibly help aid you in terms of identifying targets and doing superhuman things. So riddle me this. How do they do all that fancy electronic uh, simulation stuff when they have to turn all the electronics off on? T- you turn off the phone for two reasons. Number one is if you're listening to your Walkman or your CD player, your Discman, whatever the kids are listening to these days. Palm Pilot. Palm Pi- using your yeah. Palm Pilot, if you're your listening, tape player, If you're listening to your, track. your Top 40 music, your, your, your big <laughs> Casey, your Casey, Casey Kasem, yeah. big American bandstand music on your, uh, on your, on your, uh, on your Walkman... Uh, then you will not know enough to get out of the way if the plane crashes. Uh, so that, that I think is right. one reason. The other one is that the uh, if you have a plane full of cell phones flying through the air uh, mm-hmm. at two thousand feet, um, going mm-hmm. whatever two hundred miles an hour, three hundred miles an hour, uh, that it actually interferes with the performance of the towers on the ground because they can't do the handoff fast enough. Mm. I, that's what I'm told. Mm. I mean, but all this sounds like fairy tales. All this sounds like a bunch of a bunch of hooey. Yeah, it's sort of like I don't know. It's like how sometimes parents tell you to not do something because a boogeyman's going to do whatever, <laughs> right. and then yeah, eventually right. you yeah. you realize that oh, there is no boogeyman, and then then it leads you to do more reckless things. Yes, that's true. And you don't believe what your parents say after that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, no, this is a great point. And this is this is my like my biggest objection to these like silly FAA rules, um, among a bunch of other rules and regulations, is that you know, there's this effect where people start ignoring you. So it let me take a mm-hmm. kind of a manageable example. If I'm running a company and I have a hundred policies that I hand over to my employees, and all hundred one of all hundred of those policies, if you violate them, you're going to be fired, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. Maybe you know, maybe even all those rules make sense. But if I'm only enforcing ten of those, mm-hmm. right? If I'm only if, if I'm only enforcing ten percent of the of these absolutely inviolable rules that I've got, well, then I have no credibility, right? And mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm not actually introducing new authority. I'm not creating new authority for myself. I'm not creating the respect of the people subject to my rules. Uh, I'm actually making them cynical, right? And they're going to feel like all of this is frivolous, right? So there may be some aspect mm-hmm. of, the, of the phone ban that 
makes total sense, right? Maybe there is a technical reason. Maybe there is like a legitimate safety reason. Um, I don't know because there are all kinds of other, you know, ridiculous rules around the flight experience, right? Starting with the TSA um, and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and ending when the plane lands. So I don't know. I wonder if anybody's like maybe the FAA has taken like a holistic view of what the effect of this like highly regulated customer experience is like. Um, because yep. it, can't, it can't be good for compliance, right? Because I don't know what's actually important yes. and what's not, right? Because right. not smoking in the bathroom is apparently just as important as fastening my seatbelt. Right. Yeah. Well, and also, what what if we did it this way? What if there was an SCAP security guide for FAA policy? Now you're talking. Where, so in, yeah, so instead of just the FAA coming up with all the rules, uh, you can actually have... Uh, passengers or flight attendants and and it's like you know it's like no I do want to bring my machete and and it's a flight flight <laughs> attendant saying no it's your machete has to be a certain length and you know and it's <laughs> you could sort of reach consensus of what the right length of the machete should be uh, if at all um, but yeah and and also is it is it uh, is it uh, is it like you said is it equally bad to have a your your palm pilot on compared to, you know, having your machete with you. Right, right, right. I don't know, it's really frustrating. And actually part of this, one of the lessons I'm taking away from this is the need for transparency, um, especially when you're asking for compliance, right? Um, Mm -hmm. The need for being, letting people know not only how a decision, not only the mechanics of how a decision was arrived at, but but what the substance of that decision was. Um, which right now we don't yes. get very much of either uh, from the FAA or the airlines for that matter. Uh, I mean, airlines are notorious, and actually flight attendants are notorious for telling you that something is an FAA regulation when all they mean is, please do what I say, right? Um, right. And so, yeah. Well, and, and it's a regulation that the flight attendant is in charge, so anything they say is F- an FAA regulation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I actually had, I had, a, I had a flight attendant once tell me that a, a particular rollerboard that I had brought on the flight had to be gate-checked because it was an FAA regulation. Like, I, like that's wow. crazy talk, right? I mean, that, and also lazy, right? Also, I mean, that, and that's, anyway, that's maybe the real mm-hmm. objection is that when people fall back on their, when people fall back on their authority unnecessarily uh, rather than trying to be persuasive, um, it, it it makes people cynical, right? It it, it almost begs people to uh, to flout their authority to to ignore them. Right? Yep. Well, and I think the other thing too could be. Uh, have you ever? I think we talked about this before about the magic word because. Hmm. Maybe we have, but I don't remember. But let's let's talk about it again. So um, there's a psychological hack that people use that they'll say that oh well. It doesn't matter what it is. It's like, oh, can I get in front of you because I'm late for my flight? Mm-hmm. And and but if you say, can I get in front of you? The, the people have done studies that say um, they're they're more likely to say no. But if you say because and um, if if you say because and then have some reason behind it, they're more likely to let you go. Oh. And it was what was really interesting is that the study said that it doesn't matter what comes after the because. It you know it's so they did stuff like for like an ATM uh, people waiting in line to get use an ATM machine and they'll come up and say well oh can I get in front of you because I I really need to be in front of you hmm. and and they'll be like uh, okay and they'll let them do it and and they were able to statistically prove that you know that that if there is some rationale behind it um, but if I, I think that it's like oh well if it was a, a credible because 
uh, I think people would be more likely to comply. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it's like, well, turn your electronics off during the safety briefing because you know your safety is important. We want to make sure everybody's following along. Um, you know, and it could be it could be reasonable. Um, but but whenever the because is, um, well, you got to turn your your Palm Pilot off because the plane might fall out of the sky during landing. You know, that's not believable. You know, be, uh, for you know, well, because. Um, you know, if it was possible, you know, terrorists would have been using that trick right. for years. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, you know, actually, what I'm see, what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing here is, and this is something that we've talked about before. Maybe it's been on the show. Um, I mean, w- one of my favorite uh, Southern traits is mm-hmm. uh, saying thank you and then giving the reason for why you're thankful. Um, mm, is not very not very common in the North, right? But in the but if, as you go into the South, it becomes more common for people to say. Thank you for doing that. It was so helpful because uh, I was able to get on my plane faster. Or thanks for helping me with that. I would have really hurt my back if I had to lift that myself. Um, that is that's much more frequent in. Well, maybe not. Maybe maybe it's not a north south thing. Maybe it's a rural urban thing. Um, but in any case, mm-hmm. the the acknowledgement of the other person um, in the expression is is I think really important. And that's part of what the because effect is. It seems like to me, right? Because it doesn't actually matter what mm. you're saying, but you're saying. I know that I can't give you orders, but I understand that you are a rational and independent person and probably want to hear a justification, right? I'm acknowledging your, yes. yourself. I'm, I'm acknowledging your sense of self and I'm acknowledging um, uh, your sense of independence, right? By indulging it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it was mm-hmm. really interesting. It seems like, a, seems like part, all part of the same phenomena, right? Um, hmm. I wonder how much more effective, nice. or, or I wonder how... I wonder how FAA rules would change, like you say. I wonder how they would change for me if all these rules, you know, had some accompanying, even like a perfunctory justification, but just some acknowledgement that, like, I'm doing this for my own sake, or you're doing this for the sake of the efficiency of the flight, or you're doing this for the sake of safety, right? Um, yes. Instead of, you know, here are the 120 things you need to remember when you're on an airplane. There will be a quiz later. Um, <laughs> right, and 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 it's not because I said so. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, ooh, new report from the Linux Foundation. Yeah. Yeah. So the September reports out. Um, pretty interesting statistics in there. It's we heard this from uh, one of the uh, public sector essays, uh, Matt Jamison. He he told us about this and uh, Jamo. Int- yeah, Jamo. He he said that uh, well, some of the things that he found in here that were pretty compelling is that we got. Uh, nearly 10,000 developers from over a thousand different companies have contributed to the kernel. Um, we got 7.5 changes per hour. Jeez, That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, and it's uh, 15 million lines of code. Um, really interesting things. And and so, guess who's the number one contributor to the kernel? Uh, Microsoft. No. Um, Good guess. Uh, so it's Red Hat. So we, we oh, are, excellent. Yeah. Oh, good for yeah. us. That's so great. 10.2%. And uh, number two is uh, Intel. And then number three is Texas Instruments. Oh, wait a minute. Texas Instruments? Yeah. Yeah. It's probably... I didn't, I, didn't know, I, I didn't know calculators. I didn't know, the, I didn't know all those calculators. <laughs> yes. Those calculators ran, ran Linux. Yeah. No, it's ARM. Probably some oh, ARM, right. ARM yeah, stuff they're course. doing. Yeah. Oh, of course. So how would you feel if Red Hat slipped to number two? Uh, it would hurt me a little, to be honest. I, w- I would feel 
uh, I would feel like we were slipping, but only because we've been in the top spot for so long. Um, yeah. But in terms of like substantively, I I'm, I, w- I actually wouldn't be that worried um, because you know ten percent is a big chunk, but it's uh, really I think the more more valuable measurement. Um, it's always nice to say that you're the number one contributor, but I think the more valuable measurement is how many contributors are there overall. Right? Yes. Like how, how diverse the ecosystem is. I think that's much more important because it means that um, if Red Hat goes away tomorrow, um, that 90% of the work is still going to get done. Right. Well, yeah, and, and do you want to be... And we talked about this before about OpenStack, right? Where it's like you don't mm-hmm. want to be the number one contributor to something that nobody cares about. And Yes. And also the other thing that I think about too is for every line of code that Intel and Texas Instruments and everybody else writes is less line of code that Red Hat has to write um, that we have to pay an engineer mm-hmm. to write and everything. So that's yep. that helps. I think that helps us out and that helps everybody out. But I think I think maybe a more important measurement and something to definitely brag about is what code you sign off on. Yes. Yeah, because that's an actual that's an indication not just of the work that you're putting in, but the amount of authority that you have inside the project, right? Yeah, um, and and for that way, I think we clocked in at a very healthy twenty five percent. Yeah, that's one out of every four lines. Pretty yeah. pretty impressive. Pretty cool. Yeah. So can I make you mad? Oh, I'm. Re- uh, hold on. Okay. Yeah. Go. Okay. You, you need, you're going to need like a paper bag to ventilate hyperventilate into. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I'm gonna, I have a feeling I'm going to have to turn the mic down on my microphone, the volume down. Yeah, do you, do you have like a red button for cursing? That, you, know, <laughs> you, you don't want the FCC to come down on you. Um, uh, so, okay. So, Gunner Bait of the Week here, uh, courtesy of uh, Mike Olson, who is uh, mm-hmm. uh, board chairman and chief strategy officer at Cloudera. Uh, also, yep. the one of the guys was Sleepy Cat. Was uh, right. you know he had a lot to do with that. So, okay. So his quote. Uh, so here's a conundrum facing enterprise infrastructure software companies. You can no longer win with a closed source platform, and you can't build a successful standalone company purely on open source. Mm-hmm. So so you can't win if you're closed sourced, but you also can't win if you're purely open source. So first of all, great soundbite. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't know all of the context around the statement, but I'm going to take it totally at face value. Um, y- yes. Okay. So, so first of all, you can no longer win with a closed source platform. Um, okay, so first of all, I'm not exactly sure what winning means, but let's say he means like being successful. People can be totally successful on a closed source platform mm-hmm. um, for some measures of success, right? I mean, people are doing it today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but handset manufacturers... Um, Apple, like, is the classic counterexample. Um, so that, so I'm not sure that's exactly true. But I think his more important point is that it is more difficult to be a closed sor- uh, uh, like a closed vendor than it was in the past, mm-hmm. which is absolutely true, right? Because you have all this competition from from open, more open platforms. Yeah, remember when proprietary used to be a benefit on a data sheet? Oh yeah, no. I'm walking around this algorithm. conference. Yeah. yeah, no, no. I'm walking around this conference, and people are saying, uh, "Well, we have the, you know this this proprietary method or this proprietary standard." Um, and it's interesting. There's a certain class of like IT vendor where proprietary is still like supposed to be something good, mm-hmm. um, and for uh, for other people, it's like it's revolting, right? In in, in the sense of like literally like repulsive, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's it, it's interesting to see that like cultural break. Um, 
But anyway, but the, so the, but the second half of this quote is, you can't build a successful standalone company purely on open source. Um, I, 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 did you get a paycheck? Yes. Last pay period, Dave? It, it oh, cleared. Yeah, too. It cleared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've been able to cash my check pretty reliably the last seven years. Um, that's, a, that's a little flip. Like I, again, I think he's being a little bit hyperbolic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what he means is that it is... It is certainly difficult to build a business model around open source development. That is that is definitely true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a bunch of different methods for it, right? You've got uh, you got our method, mm-hmm. right, which is default to open and then build services on top. Um, some people will say we are uh, there's like a Red Hat exceptionalism um, just because of the place where we are in the stack, specifically on Linux, right, where we have like when you own the operating system. That's it sits at a particular part of the architecture that is like peculiarly well suited to that kind of model. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also, but I mean, you've seen us go through the same thing, right? Where JBoss, mm-hmm. um, like we couldn't pull off the same kind of model with JBoss. Like we had to actually make a few tweaks, yes, um, in order to make it in order to make it work for JBoss. And, and likewise, uh, OpenStack is probably also going to be uh, different in one way or another. Um, so I think the, uh, but I think to say that it is, it is impossible to be to, well I mean what he said was, uh, be a successful standalone company purely on open source, um, and I don't know about you Dave but I'm looking around at all these startups and you know Cloudera included who seems to be doing fairly well for themselves, mm-hmm. um, and these guys stand on an ocean of open source software, mm-hmm. um, and even if and I would say that even companies that are selling proprietary products often use open source tools and open source code and open source methods internally. Right. Right. Um, so, but what anyway, about, uh, yeah. what about like, you know, to me it's like you, okay. What about going all in versus say like the open core model where, where you have an open source center right. with a, with a uh, proprietary shell around it. Um, and I well, think see, that's that's, the, that's probably his yeah. his angle, right? Exactly. Like that's a, and that's the that and so the irony of that is that that is at least my experience or what I've seen the way I feel about it is what he's the the approach that he's suggesting, which is that in order to do open source com- in a in a commercial environment, that you have to have an open core model. Um, I would say exactly the opposite, mm-hmm. right? um, because when you have unless you have a very carefully constructed, sorry. Open core meaning you have an open source project, and what you sell is extensions or kind of layers on top of it. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a whole bunch of I think there's a lot of variance in kind of where you draw the line into what's open and what you're going to sell for money, and where you draw that line matters a lot. Yes, um, there are there are companies who have open source projects that have been successful, and then they tried to sell kind of additional value on top of it. Um, but what they ended up doing is refocusing their effort on the stuff that earned them money, and they tended to ignore the underlying core, mm. and the project kind of fell apart. Right. right. That's the that's the classic like fail state of 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 an open core project. But and I think open core kind of leads you to believe that 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 that's kind of that that's the model. Um, I think. Uh, again, there's a lot of variance in where you draw the line. I think one of the reasons why Red Hat's been successful is because there's a there's clear differentiation on um, what is a platform and then what is the value on top of the platform, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, so another company that, that has actually, I think, done a nice job of balancing the stuff off is Enterprise DB, mm-hmm. right? Um, where they have been able to add additional value on top of an open source project without letting the open source project lie fallow. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some and in some cases, they're adding additional features, and I think they they release it to the community, but they release it like later, mm-hmm. like you know, a year after the the enterprise version is available. Um, in other cases, you know, they'll make a decision. They'll say, "We're going to work on this feature," and this will end up in the community stuff. There, we're going to work on this feature. It'll stay in the enterprise stuff longer. Um, that is a totally valid way to do it. Um, but I think to say categorically that open source can't be done without an open core model, or that open you simply can't make money on open source, and you have to find another way to to get value, is like reductive. I, I just it's, it seems overly simplistic. I mean, it's a really nice quote, and I like the balance, like. Rhetorically, it's a nice quote, but um, in terms of the substance, I, I, I don't see a whole lot of evidence of it. Yeah, no, I agree. And and you know, I guess some other examples of, of open core could be like uh, Android or iOS. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just so. And yeah. um, but also, uh, you know, maybe the other part of it too is, you know, it's you know, people always ask, well, who's going to be the red hat of OpenStack or whatever? And it's it's I, I think t- you could either try to be the quote unquote dominant or, you know, the red hat of whatever, or the, you know, the dominant player of whatever the project is. But if you can't do that, then you need to have some sort of proprietary differentiation. And, and that's what, so instead of you, you know, it's, you know, it's like, if you love something, you give it away and then it'll come back to you sort of thing. Or Mm -hmm. that, that sort of model, I think is more the red hat model as opposed to keeping proprietary things back um, as a way to keep customers um, and I don't yeah. want to say hold them hostage, but it's like the only way you can get it is from that private or from from that company that's making that. And especially when you start thinking about startups um, and vendor abandonment and stuff like that, if if that it's cool if you have that open core, but once but if the company folds, you that 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 proprietary shell you lose you know you you can't get that anymore, and and you don't have an yes. alternative. Um, and sometimes that's a risk worth taking. Um, other times, other times not so much. Yeah. Um, but what is what is it? But I guess it's like to take a step back on the quote. I mean, what he is talking about, I think, is relevant. And I'm actually seeing it at the show this week. Um, yeah, where are you? That, oh, I'm at the Gartner thing. Okay. Um, Gartner's. I guess it's the in Orlando. It's the the North American part of their IT expo, and there's I guess like a dozen of these around the, around the world this year. Um, so fun show. We're meeting some great people, uh, but I'm seeing, I'm seeing a ton of open source software, um, kind of all over the place. And there's, you know, there's not a lot of angst about open source. It's just kind of like how the world works. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's what's really heartening to me is that you'll see companies that are you know like built on open source software and are selling services and support around open source projects. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't feel compelled to talk about open source as like the headline, right? Hmm. They can instead talk about feature, function, benefit stuff, oh. um, and like, oh, and by the way, we're we're open source. Um, okay, so they don't lead with that as yeah. you know, like in the past, it would be proprietary, it would be on the data sheet, and and now you're saying open source maybe in a small, you know, it's on page two of the data sheet, maybe. Right, right, because I guess, and I guess the way I interpret it is like the novelty's worn off. Right. Um, right. And, and in, depending on which kind of sector of software you're talking about, it's like it's just assumed that what you're working on is open source. Um, yes. Uh, 
anyway, it's interesting. I mean, there's definitely a sea change going on. And I think also as people get more comfortable with open source, um, you know, one of the reasons why Red Hat makes money is uh, is because we make, the way I put it is, like, we make open source feel like enterprise software, um, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of, like, the quality of the software, but also in terms of, like, you know, the support and matching life cycles and things like that. Um, and I think the need to make open source software feel like enterprise software, I think that need is is in some ways diminishing, right, as people get more comfortable mm-hmm. with it as a, as a development model. Yep. Um, well, cool. Well, speaking of open source and conferences. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, so the Red Hat Summit call for proposals is open, yep. um, which is amazingly early, right? Um, but it's the uh, well, April well, 14th we're doing, we're, is yeah, when the summit is. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, April 14th, we're doing, the, uh, we're doing the summit a lot earlier this year. And, and we're changing venues too, aren't we, Dave? Yep. San Francisco. San um, Francisco. Sister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that'll be changing from Boston. So that'll be interesting. That's great. I'm going to bring my fixie. What is that? My is that is that one of those? I don't even want to know what that is. <laughs> you're you're taking a fixie to San Francisco. I'm taking. What, I'm what taking is, is this I'm, some sort of hippie thing? <laughs> no, this is my my fixie bicycle. My fix gear bicycle. I'm gonna I'm gonna do my craft brewery tours, and I'm gonna grow a goatee, and I'm gonna ride to San Francisco on my fixie bicycle. It's okay, that's what the kids are doing. All right. All right. You do that. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Let's go. Let's get back on the on some. Uh, let's get back on a shared knowledge base here. Uh, uh, Rel five ten. It's out the door. Yep. So it's out the door. Um. And and amazingly, um. You know, you think that oh, this is the tenth minor release of Rel five, but the tech press has picked up on it. Um. You know, so. One of the cool things I like is it has SCAP 1.2 support. So all the people that uh, like doing SCAP uh, work to, for policy and scanning things with Oval, um, that positions us well as we're in evaluation for uh, NIST certifying Open SCAP as a as an SCAP scanner. So I'm excited about that. Yep. Yeah. That's very cool. Yep. That's very cool. And then uh, Rel six. But Rel six is also getting a release, right? Isn't that coming up? Yep. So six five beta is out now. So people can go and, and try it out. So all kind of new cool stuff there, um, exciting things. Um, and we'll put a link. And how do they? And how do they? And how do people get to get to these bits? Like I got to pay. I got to pay money for five ten, right? Right. You got to have a subscription, right? You got to have a, mm-hmm. you, and it's all in the customer portal. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And uh, and speaking of paying money uh, for REL, um, so we we have a new model. That that we came out with too, so um, a, a new way to consume REL. So this is pretty cool. Where you know one of the pains that we had in the past with with the older models is that we we had this tie back to the physical hardware where we would have to know mm-hmm. all right how many sockets are in your server and um, you know things like that. Where a lot of times, especially if you're doing virtualization, um, somebody may just want to entitle REL as a guest and the the virtualization department is like a totally different part of the organization and they have no insight as to what the underlying hypervisor is. So we have the ability to do um, instance-based pricing for um, uh, for REL server. Um, so that that's pretty cool. And then you, you also have the ability to do stacking. So if you have um, a four-socket server, you can buy two-socket pairs of RHEL server to entitle that system. And, and then when you retire that four-socket server, and then you want to have two two-socket servers, you could take those same two copies of RHEL and entitle those individually, or can, and you have the portability to turn them into 
uh, physical entitlements to virtual entitlements to take it out to a certified cloud provider. So it's pretty cool. That is cool. And, and actually, can, I mean, I know a lot of customers run into this problem of, like, they've already bought RHEL for physical servers, yep. um, and maybe they bought it years ago. Yeah. And now they now they need to move into a virtual environment or, you know, maybe even want to move onto a cloud. And they kind of struggle with, well, how am I, like, how do I map these things or how do I... How do we move it from from this one environment to the other, and then maybe in the opposite direction as well? Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, really am, frankly, relieved to have a model that allows for that. Right? Um, that makes it pretty clear um, uh, what it is that uh, what it is that you're putting yourself on the hook for mm-hmm. uh, when you install Rel. It's, it's a lot simpler than the way it used to be. That's for sure. Right, and especially compare that to like the. The way people use well, some they still some people still sell software this where where they sell like a big high ticket item for the license for the software, and then there's a low mm-hmm. cost uh, support tail that people pay. But but how do you repurpose that license uh, to move it to a virtual machine or off to the cloud? And I think a lot of the the ways that you know pe- software companies have done that in the past are really struggling as people are, want to migrate workloads to virtual machines in the to the cloud, um, mm-hmm. where this new model makes it really well suited for that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. At, uh, uh, Steve Ballmer gave the uh, keynote at this conference this morning, and one of the things they asked him about was um, moving to new licensing models when Microsoft offers things in the cloud. And uh, and they said, you know, well, are you are you going to be simplifying your your pricing model? And Steve Ballmer said, well, if we simplified it too much, we'd uh, we'd put you guys, Gartner, the analysts, uh, we put you guys out of business. The kind of yes. like big, big laugh from the crowd, and I was like, "Wait a minute! Like this company is actually their whole industry is built up around the complexity of some software companies' models, right? And it's not just Microsoft; it's a lot of companies. Um, yeah. Hopefully, the, hopefully, there's not an analyst out there who has to, you know, earn their earn their living explaining people our pricing model. I think if uh, uh, if we were able to put that guy out of business, we could declare this this new pricing and packaging a success. Yep. Yeah, either that or he would have to charge by the 15-minute increment. <laughs> That's, <simple>. right. <laughs> That's right. I yeah. see what you did there. That's very clever. Yeah. And the other thing that came out, Satellite 5.6, mm-hmm. um, which helps with the, the new model as well. So it'll help with, uh, it integrates with Subscription Asset Manager. So you're able to um, keep track of your subscriptions as they, as they move from, like, physical servers to virtual and it helps with accounting and the stacking and all that. And the other thing that, you know, I've, I've talked to a couple of the SAs about the new model who have run it by customers and you would think that, oh, well, SAM or subscription asset manager, it's like that can't be that exciting because all it does is just help customers count their consumption of subscriptions. But he said that, that his customers, uh, one of the guys I talked to, he said his customers are really excited about it because you think about it when it comes to renewal time. And then there's this big data call. All right, who's using RHEL? Uh, what are you using it for? What's your system size and all that? Where SAM will aggregate all that for you, and it can generate a report, and you know what you're using. Um, so, And then the benefit there is that customers can pay for what they're using as opposed to mm-hmm. um, possibly under-entitling or, or paying too much for their software. And they could also get a nice prediction model over time. Yep, 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 exactly right. Yeah, no, SAM, SAM is a, I mean, really, honestly, I think... The subscription asset manager, I think it's a pretty big deal, and and frankly, I wish we kind of publicized it more because um, I think a lot of customers would find it would find it useful. Um, yep. So anyway, if you haven't checked out subscription asset manager, uh, you should definitely take a look. Um, it is a very useful tool. 
Yep. And we have open demos for uh, the SA organization. The uh, Solutions Architect organization does open demos for things like Satellite and uh, JBoss and, and things like that. Rev. A, so uh, and open demos are like, uh, like what? Like open houses? Yeah. It's, or like office hours where mm-hmm. it's like somebody, like a lot of times people will be like, oh, well, uh, I'm interested in this whole satellite thing. I read about it. I saw a webinar on it, but can I see it in action? Or I have some questions. So it's it's really for, for customers, it, it's like they, they want to see it in action. Um, and you could think of all the, the time it would take to get satellite or, or uh, rev installed and getting the hardware and everything, and just to be able to see it and poke around. Um, so this is a way that um, you, you can get the SAs on the phone and show them, and, oh, well, can you try this? Can you try that? And it, it really helps them uh, get a good understanding of what you know how it works and everything. So it's it's a really nice success for um, RSAs to, to be able to do that because they, 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 it's very popular. We've been doing that for about a year now. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. That's what I always say. Yep, exactly. And we, and, and we are extremely flattered, are we not? Yep. Yeah. So it's um I found out about this uh internally there is a internal podcast going on um uh done by Red Hat Consulting. Um and uh done by uh Crane Arnold and uh Ian Tewksbury. Um and it's it's a really good podcast. It's it's internal to Red Hat, but um it's it's very much like if you can imagine the Dave and Gunner show with an internal bent, just sort of on internal Red Hat culture and all that. So it's it's really cool. I, I really enjoy it. That's great. So what I want to know is which one is Dave and which one is Gunner. Yes. Yes. And I don't know if that's good or bad. Or, which is, <laughs> right. or maybe I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. Nobody wins. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but one of the, one of the cool things that they showed uh, that they had in the, in the one podcast is I'll, uh, I'll 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 put it in the show notes. Is did you know about the JBoss Community Store on Cafe Press? Yeah, I did indeed. Uh, a lot of the designers of the stuff in that Cafe Press store uh, are actually mm-hmm. from Austin. Um, they actually yeah. work, they work out of Austin. Yeah, so it's like they they have stuff like oh if you if you uh, need a new mod cluster T shirt um, you can you can get one from the Cafe <laughs> Press store. So it's it's some of the the logos are actually pretty cool. Like it's like, like I want to like get that shirt and wear it to a concert somewhere because it looks like oh what band is that man you know and, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, I, I will say the J Boss uh, the J Boss business unit definitely has some of the coolest swag. Um, yeah. I've got I I still when I take my dog for a walk I still wear my Code Thug T shirt um, <laughs> and nobody like messes with crazy you. nobody messes with me Code Thug. Yeah. <laughs> nice yeah so cool um oh and speaking of consulting uh congratulations uh to the public sector consulting team on winning the uh, va scheduling contest yeah so what's that all about so red hat teamed up with hp and we responded to a competition that the va was running uh they needed a uh scheduling module uh for their electronic health record system and mm-hmm. so instead of you know doing the usual like put the work out to bid file an rfp etc uh they actually ran an open contest um and mm. we, we entered the contest um and red hat together with hp won uh this is i guess last week or week before um so we'll include a link to that in the uh, in the show notes. But congratulations to that entire team. Uh, really nice work. We need to get the FAA to do a uh, airline policy contest. Yeah, because we we'd win that, Dave. 
we'd win. Our, it. our consultants would they would they're road warriors. They they know what the, <laughs> they what the know. Yeah, would be. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And if they'd have like, oh well, the, we got to have so many drinks before takeoff, and yep, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of drinks, if you're playing the Dave and Gunner drinking game, we're about to mention Sean Wells. <laughs> uh, so right. take a drink, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there's news uh, from the SCAP security guide. Yeah, so we we have we want to welcome a new committer, uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Very nice, thank you, Oak Ridge. Yeah, um, that's like the twenty fourth, twenty fifth agency to contribute to the project. Yeah, yeah. God, so it's like, pretty cool. And yeah. and the other thing that, that Sean's like, oh well, if you're doing a plug, and we got to make sure he's getting his money's worth for his advertising, <laughs> right? right? Um, that he said that uh, that they're actually doing uh, an official build for EPO, um, and then it's going to be uh, coming soon. And then they're actually doing their builds inside of Koji, uh, which is our uh, um, RPM building and tracking system in the Fedora project. So it's it's not just like a, a, a caffeine fueled Sean Wells doing RPM build in, on a Sunday morning or something. You know, it's right. uh, it's actually there's there's they're they're taking advantage of the uh, Fedora build infrastructure. So it's pretty nice. That's good. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, yeah, nice work, Sean. Um, yep. so and Oak Ridge and Oak Ridge yes, yes. that's very true uh, alright cool Dave uh, I think I gotta get back to the show floor uh, yeah you need to look for some proprietary open source yes and if I'm lucky if I'm lucky it'll be patented right patent pending yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> alright great um, well thanks everybody yeah well hey wait a minute so oh, if if they need I always to, want to skip this part of the show. I always yeah. skip it. Well, like if somebody needs to get their uh uh mod cluster t shirt um mm-hmm. and they need that that cafe press link, where where do they need to go? Yeah, they should go to uh dgshow.org. Uh that's D as in Ian, G as in Crane, show.org. Nice. Okay, thanks everybody. All right, have a good weekend. <laughs>